You're listening to Beyond the Ordinary, a show about the companies, founders, and ideas that are shaping the future of health, science, and financial technology. Here's your host, Tommy Martin. Well, hey, everybody. Welcome back to Beyond the Ordinary. I am so glad to have you here today. And we have a special guest, my good friend, Jeff Brewer. Jeff comes from an unconventional background. You are going to hear today about his time in the Coast Guard, where he was leading a ship and actually chasing down drug runners, saving lives of people trapped in the ocean. And you're also going to hear about his incredible transition from this military role out into the private sector today to actually find companies to buy and grow and maintain a great culture for those people. But my favorite part about what you're going to hear from Jeff is he calls himself an entrepreneurial coward. And this is such a juxtaposition because here's this guy that is chasing down drug runners, yet he identifies himself in some aspects as a coward. And we're absolutely going to push in and ask him why that is. And you'll also hear about what ultimately drives him as he's going out and purchasing these companies. And I think it's a pretty powerful why. So I'm so glad you're here. And Jeff, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me, Tommy. I really appreciate it. And uh, I've enjoyed our friendship over the past couple of years. I decided to talk to your audience. So, you know, audience, I've never had someone say as they're being introduced, you know, let people know I'm an entrepreneurial coward. And I know Jeff's background. This guy is a former lieutenant commander in the Coast Guard. He's been a captain of a ship where his job was to chase drug runners across the ocean. So he is as far from a coward as I've ever known. And yet that's part of how he likes to be introduced. So, Jeff, let's start there. This aspect of entrepreneurial coward, where does that come from and how does that play out for you? Yeah, thanks again, Tommy. I really appreciate the chance to chat with you and your listeners. I've really enjoyed over the past couple of weeks getting caught up on your show. I've probably listened to a dozen episodes or more. And again, so impressed by your guests and, and what I've learned already. Hopefully I can uh, share some insight or some ideas that, that your listeners will gain from. But, you know, the entrepreneurial coward moniker came to me a couple of years ago as I was looking around at all of the entrepreneurs, those folks that just so fearlessly put their money, but more importantly than that, just their security on the line. And they threw out these ideas and innovated, got creative. They found these opportunities and they put it all out there and risked it all and started these amazing companies. And when I look at that entrepreneurial gene, the ability to do that, I just thought, man, I am such a coward when it comes to this area of the you know, area of business. And so I wanted to jump in into that world, but I needed to find a way, as uh, some of my former professors called it, to not just play with risk, but manage risk. And so those entrepreneurs are those ones that are taking those bold risks. How can I manage risk and become entrepreneurial without being that guy that had that amazing idea? I always wished I had that breakthrough idea, but I just never did. I love that. And, you know, we talk about that sometimes, Jeff, that, you know, a startup, there's some kind of bold vision behind it if it's going to get out the gate. But after it gets out the gate, often it takes a very, very different leader to take it from beyond startup into kind of scalable enterprise. And there's a concept we've talked about on this show in the past called the founder's dilemma. And the idea is 
it's very, very rare that the person who launches the bold idea is also the right person to carry on and grow it into a powerhouse, scalable company. But what's really hard about that is that who do we see out there in the public? We see the Bill Gateses, we see the Steve Jobses, and these become kind of the business icons of the day, the Jeff Bezoses. And yet it's such a rare event. It's a less than 1% event that the person who has the bold idea will also be the right person to grow the business to its kind of maximum capability. And yet that's what everybody looks at. And so they think that's the expectation when really the expectation should be, even if you're the person with an incredibly bold idea, it's okay if you're not the person to go grow that into a nationwide powerhouse or a global powerhouse. That's really the norm, not the exception. So Jeff, I think what I've seen from you is, you know, even though you might not be the guy with the bold idea, you're certainly an expert at coming in and taking that business and making it a lot more efficient. And I want to take our listeners back through your background to get us launched here. Um, Let's go back to the Coast Guard. And I'd love to hear about your time really beginning with the Coast Guard Academy and ultimately how that takes you on this journey to launching Hanuk Ventures, where you come in and actually buy companies and then help connect them with incredible leaders. And we'll get to talk about your military connection and how that comes back into this whole thing. But let's start with the Coast Guard Academy. Thank you, Tommy. You know, my background, I was the son and grandson of pastors and military officers. And so I needed to select which one of those paths if I was going to follow in my father and grandfather's footsteps. And I was very fortunate to get into the Coast Guard Academy. I had a great four years there, really made me the man that I am today. Learned a great deal about leadership, about followership, about service. It was an incredible experience. And following that, I was in the Coast Guard for 14 years. So spent quite a bit of time in the Caribbean and off the Mexico coastline, uh, the California coastline, doing drug interdiction, search and rescue, and pulling people out of the water. Proud to say, uh, over my career, the crews that I were, was a part of, uh, we pulled over 100 people out of the water, so saved over 100 lives. And, and I've just been a part of incredible teams of folks, crews of folks, and learned a great deal about leadership there. And after getting my MBA, I became excited about the private sector and started to think about ways I could apply my leadership in other areas. And that's where uh, some of this entrepreneurship work started. So Jeff, I've always heard with the academies that they're a fantastic place to be from, but not necessarily a fantastic place to be at. How would you describe your time at the academy? Was it uh, actually enjoyable while you were there or was it in retrospect, everything you learned while being there that you now appreciate? That's a great question, Tommy. I think that many people that go to the academies understand exactly what you're talking about. It is a very difficult place to go to college. It is not the typical experience. You're waking up at 5.30 in the morning. You're wearing a uniform all day. You're going to classes as a regular college student, but you only have four years to graduate. So you're taking often 20 to 24 credit hours a semester. In addition to that, every student there is required to do some form of sports or athletics. And so you're doing that in the afternoons and evenings. 
So you've got the military, the academics, and the athletics that you're doing each and every day for four straight years. And every summer, instead of relaxing on the beach, you're actually heading out into the operational Coast Guard and doing the work of the Coast Guard. And, uh, you know, I actually really loved what I was doing. I think I was better prepared with my dad being a Naval Academy graduate and understanding part of those, what they did out there. And so I was pretty excited. So I ended up having an incredible experience while I was there, a really enjoyable time. I had made some lifelong friendships, guys that were in my wedding. You know, I had incredible mentors that are still mentors of mine to this day. And while I was there, I learned a great deal and I would never uh, do it any other way. And so you hit this point, you'd done a lot of service in the Coast Guard after the academy and actually leading a ship and ultimately decided you were ready to move on to the private sector. And what was it that started to call you in that direction? Yeah, it's a great question. I had the best job in the entire Coast Guard. And I perhaps that's my qualification, but I would say I did. It was uh, I was the commanding officer of the Coast Guard Cutter Blackfin out of Santa Barbara, California. So I was in the best area of the Coast Guard, one of the most enjoyable duty sections the operational sectors of the Coast Guard. My area of operation was the Channel Islands and the Mexico coastline, where I got to spend a ton of time boarding boats of Hollywood stars and doing search and rescue. One time we did a boarding of Johnny Carson's boat, which might date me a little bit, but I got to see Johnny Carson as I inspected the life jackets on his yacht. So a ton of fun being uh, off the California coastline. It's actually where I met my wife as well. So I just had the best two years of my life in the Coast Guard. And I said, you know, nothing could top this. I need to look at an entirely new sector to try to find something to top this. And so that's where, you know, the entrepreneurial juices were flowing. And I was trying to have that same experience, that same leadership type experience that I had as captain of the ship in leading a company and doing those pieces. So. So your first foray going out into the private sector, where did you go? So I started at advice of some friends to an organization that was big and military-like to make as smooth a landing as possible, and that was General Electric. So joined an organization with 330,000 people, 175 billion in revenue, you know, one of the biggest of the big organizations. And what my desire was, you know, they've fallen on a little bit of hard times lately, but GE's got such a great history and tradition, and they've got a lot of military transition programs. And so the training was you know, first rate and the ability to kind of bring me into the private sector was, it was a really good one. I love my time there. Again, had wonderful mentors. It is a great organization learned a great deal from it. But at the same time, I was having trouble dealing with such a large organization. I wanted to be into something smaller. I wanted to be able to make decisions and move the course of the ship. And, you know, people joke about the size of the rudder. You know, it's a, a ship as big as GE. It's pretty hard to move that rudder. Well, in a much smaller ship, you could do that a lot better. And that's when I started doing angel investing at that point down in Atlanta and started working with the smallest of the small companies. So going from giant GE to these little tiny startups with usually one or two founders who had just a good kernel of an idea, but hadn't even oftentimes made the product yet. They were still just trying to figure things out. And what was particularly interesting is it was an angel investing group that I kind of snuck into. They heard that I was an entrepreneur and a guy that liked to do this type of stuff, but I didn't have a penny to invest because you know I was a, a military guy and then GE doesn't pay a whole lot. But what I did is I realized that some of the folks that were getting these angel investments 
or I should say, were not getting these angel investments, they were close, but they didn't, is they were missing a couple of key things that I had, which was a good sense of strategy, a good leader, and a good understanding of operations. And so I ended up finding a couple of these folks that didn't get the investment. I pulled them aside and said, hey, right now I've got a day job, so I don't need any of your cash. You're cash poor, but equity rich. What if I took a little piece of equity and I helped you raise money get strategy figured out, get some of this operational stuff figured out, and then I'll actually lead and help you with some of your presentations. And I did that with what ended up being one organization that sold buy one, give one peanut butter of all things. And so they sold peanut butter and Kroger and Whole Foods. And for every jar of peanut butter they sold, they gave a meal to a child in need. And it was this wonderful organization called Help Good Spread. And over the course of history of the company, we fed over 200,000 kids. So it was a really wonderful, successful organization that did these wonderful things. And I helped them figure out some of the ways to raise money and to build a strategy that would work. And after that, I was hooked and ended up doing that with multiple organizations. And that was really the start of Fanuc Ventures. So if I can boil it down for our listeners, it sounds like you went in and said, I don't have capital to give to these companies right now, but I have skills and I have time. And you were able to go in with these companies and negotiate and ultimately take some equity in exchange for your skills and your time. Am I understanding that correctly? Yes. Very well articulated. So I think that's a really outstanding point for some of our listeners, Jeff. I know we have some people and they're saying, gosh, I just wish I was an accredited investor. I want to go do these things and I have these companies I want to invest in, but I'm not allowed because I don't meet some arbitrary criteria that's been established for investor protections. And yet you just kind of gave them a different way, almost a backdoor into being able to participate. If they have a certain level of skill or expertise and they have the time they can give to these companies, perhaps that's a way that they can get some equity. So I really like that. It's different. We haven't had that on our show previously. So thank you for sharing that. So what then eventually pulled you away from GE? Did you build up enough of these where it finally became lucrative that you could live off of it? Or how did that next step happen? Yeah, thank you. It was not that easy. I wish I could have said I jumped out and suddenly made you know millions of dollars and, and was very successful. But, but the reality is it takes a long time, especially if you're working with these smaller companies to have some good exits. And so I had to keep my day job. So I worked at GE for a number of years, eventually rising to a point where I was leading a business for them and then was recruited out by Boston Consulting Group, which is a strategy consulting firm with offices all over the world. I was out of the Atlanta office and was helping teams do strategy and ops, primarily Fortune 500 companies. So staying with a big company theme for my day job, but continued to work with Hanuk Ventures and these small companies on the side. And it's kind of hard to believe when I look back at it, but I was doing 70 to 80 hour weeks for BCG. And then I was doing another 10 to 15 with my Hanuk Ventures companies. And any spare hours were used for family because we had three small children at the time. So I just didn't get a lot of sleep for about you know five or six years there. But got a lot accomplished, it sounds like. And so <laughs> many in our audience will recognize Boston Consulting Group or BCG, uh, as it may more aptly be known these days. Tell me about your time at BCG, because in anything, a BCG, a McKinsey, a Bain, I know everybody I've talked to that 
that stepped into that, even those that have come out of a strong military background said they learned some pretty incredible toolkit that they were able to go use for businesses. So tell us about that. Yeah, I call it my finishing school. You know, I was very fortunate to get into a really terrific MBA program and I learned a great deal there. But, you know, at BCG, it is the smartest people I've ever worked with in my life. The joke that I tell most people is, you know, most companies I've been a part of, I'm in the top quartile when it comes to kind of raw IQ. When it comes to BCG, I was in the bottom quartile. I mean, just the most brilliant people I've ever worked with in my life. And I learned a ton while I was there. I spent about three years there worked on things as unique as a nuclear power plant to a uh, you know major big pharmaceutical company's acquisition to a symphony orchestra and so you get to learn a ton of different industries a bunch of different business models and you have to learn them very very quickly because your clients are paying you top dollar to get great advice and to do great analysis and so you need to learn an industry very quickly and be able to contribute and add value right away. And so it was a very powerful time and taught me a ton about business just in general. So Jeff, I've heard from all my friends that have had that time with McKinsey or Bain or BCG, any of those large, well-known consulting firms that do good work, they've all said they learned some incredible tools that they were able to go out and use in their business life, even after being with those firms. So For our audience, what would you say are two or three of some of the just absolutely best takeaways that you got from your time at BCG that have really carried on into the way that you continue to help businesses today? Yeah, Tommy, there's so many of them, but I would say there's two or three that I think of most often that I learned from BCG. The first is the most foundational part of any business, which is building out your profit tree. You know, profit is a function of your sales and what you're getting in the revenue on the top end and the cost that you are incurring, you know, and the ability to break those down into, you know, fixed costs and variable costs, price levers versus, you know, volume levers with sales, building out that profit tree and understanding the levers that are driving each branch of that tree is fundamental to understanding any business. Another area is around corporate strategy, inorganic growth versus organic growth. I think so often as a small business, you look at just the organic growth metrics. How can I get one more customer or one more client? And you're not spending enough time saying, hey, who's that guy on the other side of town that's competing against me, perhaps, or doing something that would fold into my business well? And what if I had a conversation with them? Maybe it's a partnership or maybe it's an acquisition. And oftentimes, that's how, you know, you mentioned some of the large, very successful entrepreneurs that have really built these monster billion dollar, trillion dollar at this point businesses. Well, many of those growth pieces were around inorganic growth, finding things that your clients would find value in and bringing it under the fold as well. So there's a many different models. BCG has a ton of them. I'm sure the audience can look through and Google some of those things. But those are the things that I think of when I'm analyzing businesses and trying to add and support the growth of a business. And listeners, many of you will know exactly what Jeff means by organic and inorganic growth. But I like to think of it this way. Organic is more you're acquiring one new customer at a time through your existing organization. Whereas inorganic is you're going out and buying another company in your space that already comes built in with a pretty large customer base. So they're both ways to grow, but you can imagine if you can acquire one company that already has 10,000 customers, it's a much quicker growth path than acquiring one customer at a time because you have to go get all 10,000 of them that way. 
one of the things Jeff actually taught me, it was just, he kept seeing small companies that were completely myopic and they were only looking at growing one customer at a time. And they weren't thinking about any acquisition potential, usually because they just don't know how to do it. And just to give a real life example, why this matters in the financial industry, you know, that's where I come from. But Jeff, in the financial industry, what we know is if somebody eclipses, let's say $10 million in revenue, just by eclipsing that revenue target, their valuation may go, and we're here in early 2022 today, their valuation might go from six, seven, eight times EBITDA all the way up to a 10, 11, 12 times EBITDA just because their revenue number is over $10 million. That's just the way the industry is working right now. So listeners, what I'm saying there is sometimes just by combining with another company, even if your profit doesn't change by a whole lot for either one of you, it can increase your valuation of your company by as much as 50% just because you are considered to have achieved some kind of scale. That's a really big boost to a company's value just for merging up with another company. So those are some of the things Jeff's alluding to that a lot of small companies just don't think that way because they just had a brilliant idea and they're just trying to get it out to the market and they haven't had the experience to think strategically. And then Jeff, the other thing that comes in all the time and you've dealt just as much with this as I have, but I feel like another big barrier is the emotions of the founders or their kind of limiting beliefs getting in the way and holding them back to all these opportunities that are truly right in front of them. Yeah, I would agree, Tommy. What I like to describe the business stages as, there's an idea, right? There's the formation of an idea. That's when someone will create something uh, early on. Then from that idea becomes a product set. And to your point, you know, you reach a certain threshold where it goes from an idea to a product. And that's usually when you start generating real revenue. So when I was dealing with uh, my angel investment companies, I was usually dealing with folks that either had an idea or had the very first stages of a product. The next stage from there is turning it from a real product into a scalable company. And that's what you're talking about, Tommy, is, you know, it depends on industry. But after you reach a certain threshold, whether it's three million in EBITDA, 10 million in revenue, those types of numbers, Many more acquirers get interested in it because they say you've got the processes down, you've figured out the product market fit, and you know now how to begin to scale. And then they want to put some either capital or some folks that have some expertise around scaling into the business to really begin to scale it up. And then after you get over, you know, 100 million to 500 million, then it becomes kind of a long-term sustainable company, the GEs, the big companies that are out there. And so, that's where my expertise comes in, is, is acquiring those companies or supporting the transition of those companies that have run it as a product company. We have a great product or service. We have a great team. We're supporting this. But ultimately, to scale it, it's an entirely different skill set. It's an entirely different feeling and emotion at oftentimes at a business. And there is this emotional challenge. And very, very rarely is an entrepreneur able to take it from idea to product to scalable to sustainable business. And so those transitions are often necessary. And it's again, it's a difficult thing for many owners to go through that process. 
but oftentimes it will unlock a lot of the potential of the organization and unlock some of the people that you have at your organization that want to scale and grow and become leaders in a larger organization. So Jeff, let's unpack that for a moment. You've had a lot of opportunities to see kind of founders get in their own way. So you don't have to name any companies, but give us some real life examples that you've seen where founders have just really gotten in their own way and kind of inhibited the business from breaking through the next ceiling. Yeah, Tommy, there are a ton of mental hurdles that owners have to get over as they think about scaling their business. And it's not because they're limited in intelligence or anything like that. It's just because they've built something that they have been focused on and that they see as a powerful and a profitable form of doing that business. And so the question becomes, are you seeing the other opportunities that are out there? And an example that I would give is I'm actually looking at a business right now. It's got this wonderful technology and they have found great product market fit for that technology. Again, I don't want to share too much about it. It's still in process, but it does its job really well in that particular industry. And they've got a nice niche and they're very profitable serving that one industry. Well, that same technology applied to a different industry actually is a bit of a game changer in that other industry. And they have only done the smallest of testing in what that could become. And I'm now looking at that product and company and saying, hey, just a little bit of investment, a little bit of courage will be required. But if that proves to be just as efficacious, excuse the big word, but like if it works in that other industry, it could be a game changer and it could 10x your company because that industry is that much larger and has that much more need for that product. And so it's a really exciting opportunity For me, where I'm saying, hey, let me come on board your company. Let me be a good steward of what you've started and built. And let me help take it to the next level by putting a little bit of investment and having some courage in some of these new markets and building out using a team of folks that I've built to market and build and sell into these other industries. You know, Jeff, that's an example of how, you know, the owner was able to take some potential wisdom and kind of get out of their own way. But surely you've seen some examples where the owner just can't do that. I've encountered plenty. Share one of those examples for us, if you would, as well. Yeah. So there's a company that I've worked with for a number of years. And one of the biggest challenges for that CEO is letting go. And that's a common thing that I see quite often. And that's finding a team that is skilled and very capable in the functions that you hired them to execute on. And that owner has difficulty releasing and letting go some of his or her responsibilities and leading the organization. Because as you start getting into that, I call it kind of adolescence, right? You've got the product market fit. You've had some success over the years. Well, to get to that point where you start scaling, you cannot control everything in the organization anymore. You have to start delegating to your leadership team and allow them to thrive because they are now at a level and a capability set That's far beyond you in their particular area of expertise. And to release that and let that go is very difficult for many founders, especially if they're the founder, owner, operator, and they've been running the business for years. Releasing that, letting that go, and allowing your leadership team to build out all new organizations under them and build through those different pieces is very difficult. And there's an organization that I've been working with for years. And there is a saying that, do you want to be rich or do you want to be king? 
And so often in the startup world, there are people that want to be king. They want to control everything that is happening in their startup. Well, you know, I don't subscribe to just building these businesses to get rich, but to be successful and to scale, you have to release some of that authority and delegate properly. And that's not saying giving up everything to the company, to your leadership team, but giving up some of that allows them to grow in their capabilities. And soon I think they will show you how good they are. They will become experts in their particular functional areas and will be better than you ever were in that one particular area. And you've got to go through that mental and emotional process of letting go for your company to really reach that next level. I've always thought about it. If I'm the most talented guy in every position in the room, I have a big problem. You know, it it should absolutely be the opposite and that's required for scale. So, absolutely. you know, so Jeff, you had a great run with BCG. I know you got to make an impact on lots and lots of companies and eventually you just continued to feel that entrepreneurial bug. You know, how was that kind of manifesting itself in your life? What was happening internally, I guess, that was causing you to say, man, I know I'm making a big impact here at BCG. You know, arguably, I'm with one of the top consulting companies in the world. I mean, it's almost like you're back captaining another boat in Santa Barbara and you hit some kind of restlessness. What was leading to that? Yeah, that was... uh crucible in my life, a challenge where I was facing yet another job at yet another person's company. And through all of this experience, I had begun to do more and more coaching of CEOs. And I'm really passionate about that. I think that my future, when I get too old to do some of the day to day, I want to just begin to coach more and more. And my wife challenged me and my wife is is just an absolute saint. She's incredible, uh, incredible mom, incredible wife and a challenger to me. And she said, hey, I don't care what you do next, but just realize if it doesn't work, you can always go back and get another job at BCG or GE and and earn a good living. So why don't you take a little bit more risk and go try to find a business for you to buy outright and lead as opposed to continue to coach, continue to consult, continue to work and increase the size of the company. And so I began a search for a business to buy. And after a couple of starts and failures, I found a business called Cornerstone Support out of Atlanta through a friend of a friend, a guy that was in my Bible study. I tried to buy his business and he said, no, I'm not going to sell. But you got to talk to these other guys. They've got a great little business, an amazing leadership team, and they're thinking about moving on and they need a steward for the next generation for the, to continue the legacy of the business. And so it worked out. I was very fortunate. I have a great group of investors that helped support me in my goal of purchasing a business. And about a year ago, purchased that business and things have been going incredibly well ever since. Are you intentionally leaving out your time with the other family business? Well, knowing that I had my wife's support, I began to reach out to different organizations that were quite a bit smaller, hoping to participate as a CEO or COO of a business and ultimately found a family-owned business up here in Indiana and really enjoyed my time there. It's a challenging thing to participate in family business, but at the same time, it was an organization that had been around for 65 years and had a wonderful legacy and an incredible leadership team. And I was excited to participate in that and dive in deeply as a member of that team. 
And Jeff, you and I have both experienced the joys and the pains, I think, of being inside of family businesses where we are outsiders. We aren't part of the kind of original family. And boy, I've had some incredible highs in my career with some of those organizations, but I have also experienced some of my lowest lows because when things go sideways, either internally with the family or between you and the family, it gets really hard really fast. And my experience is a lot of times it stops being professional and it starts being very, very personal just because for them it is, it's family. Whereas for us as the outsiders, it's it's not as personal. We're just there to do a really good job. And a lot of times that just gets way overlooked. Has that been your experience as well? It has. I experienced, I would say, some of my highest highs and lowest lows in that family-owned business. I think the way you put it is exactly right. And it is a challenge because a culture is formed in that business that reflects the culture of that family for all of the good reasons and some of the not-so-good reasons. And so what you see in that family gets echoed in the business and it goes back and forth. And so as I came in as the chief operating officer, so the number two guy in the organization. And immediately I was working with a brand new team of folks. I was working in an industry that I hadn't worked with before. And I was working for an entire family. It was owned by four brother-in-laws. And so I had a lot of stakeholders that I had to juggle and a lot of oftentimes conflicting interest, even conflicting interest between the ownership team in the family. And different folks had different goals and different outcomes that they were looking for from the family business. And my job was to try to juggle all those things. And oftentimes, I'll be honest, I I really didn't do a great job of it. It was an incredible learning experience for me. And I think I'm a better not only business acquirer and owner now going through that experience, but I also I empathize more and I I can understand what those family-owned business leaders and those CEO founders are going through as they're looking to transition or sell their business. It's always a challenging thing, both emotionally and financially. Well, I'm going to pressure test the hypothesis with you. What I think I've experienced with family businesses is that it's a lot like leverage. It's a lot like the company going out and borrowing money, where if things go really well, leverage can be such an accelerant and help the business grow light years faster because now they have money to be able to go buy other companies or any of those things. But when it goes poorly, leverage can also work the opposite direction. And I've really come to believe, Jeff, that families in business, it's very similar. And here's my hypothesis. We talk a lot about the speed of trust and how important that is. And I've come to believe that the level of candor around the executive table where people can just completely disagree very openly and then walk out of the room and still be okay because it's not personal, that that level of candor is one of the most critical things that we are looking for for success of that company. And when you have family, that speed of trust, I think, can just be really, really accelerated. And you're just full bore because you trust these people. Like, you know, they have your back. They help stand up to the bully for you on the playground. But when it goes the opposite direction, that trust is just eroded to an order of magnitude that's so much more than even happens in a normal work environment. And I've just found the 
business, things that should just be a little issue become a really big issue. And maybe it's because of something that happened when you were five years old around the dinner table that just compounded the issue. So I guess I just throw that out. Have you seen where family business actually allows the company to move faster when things are going really well? And then I know we've both seen the family aspect really hold the company back when things are not going well. Yes, I have. And I think your analogy of it being similar to debt or leverage is a great one. It does amplify the highs and it amplifies the lows. If things are going really well, the family's going to Hawaii. The family is having an incredible Christmas. When things go the other way, you know, there might not be gifts for that Christmas. There might not be the ability for someone to go buy that car or offer that job. And when you start talking about generations of families, took a course once and they talk about families grow faster than businesses. And I said, how, how is that possible? Businesses grow really quickly. Well, <laughs> families grow exponentially. And so the challenge there is what if, you know, Susie's son wants to come in the business and have an important role and, and Susie's son isn't very capable. How do you think through those things? How do you manage those things and juggle those? That's where things get incredibly difficult as well as what happens when the second generation and even more importantly, when the third and fourth generation start coming into the businesses and not only when they start coming in, but then how do you make decisions around promotion or job opportunities? And what happens when you, for instance, like what happened to me, bring in an outsider to bring in a fresh set of eyes when the family and the business have been operating the same way for decades. And now all of a sudden there's this crazy new guy in there that has some new ideas on how to professionalize and scale the organization. Well, all of a sudden, you know, it's like a virus. It's, you know, you've got to figure out how to get rid of this, this, or you've got to leverage that and make that business better. So it takes a lot of internal stakeholder confidence and trust building, like you said. And then it takes a really strong central family leader to lead the charge and say, hey, here's what's inbounds and out of bounds for our organization when it comes to family dynamics, family councils, and, and different pieces like that. You know, I'm going to go off script for just a moment, Jeff, but one of my favorite meetings I've ever gotten to have in my life we were in the middle of some family challenges in a company that I was a part of. And this incredible man named Jack Hershend of Hershend Family Entertainment. Uh, he was a billionaire by this point. This is a company that owns things like Stone Mountain and amusement parks around the country. And Jack had to be in his late 80s, got in his Toyota, drove four hours just to come spend time with our leadership team to help us deal with these family challenges because they are one of the most successful private companies still out there. And they're going on, I believe now, generation five, maybe in this company. And I loved his formula to really put some guardrails around these things and the first part of the formula was to have an independent board of directors. So you could have insiders, you could have family members who were involved in the company. They could be on the board, but the independent directors would always outnumber the insiders. And what he believed very, very strongly was those are the adults at the table. They're just not emotionally attached the way that the family is. Their only job is to support the business and help the business make wise decisions. 
And so that was part of his key to success. His second key was, but you've got to keep the family informed. And so what they allowed, what I thought was just fascinating, was they would allow any family member who was a shareholder, no matter how old they are, they can sit in as a silent observer in every board meeting outside of executive session. They can sit in every single board meeting and listen and learn. Because eventually some of those people around that room are going to become those insider board members in the future. And that was just so meaningful for me. I've used that really as a template to help other families after that. And just the fact that he was willing to go hop in his car, you know, as a billionaire to hop in his car and drive four hours just to come see us and help us deal with our family challenges inside of this company was just absolutely incredible. I'm so grateful for that. But without those guardrails, I fully identify with what you're saying, that it can just be incredibly challenging when you have different family members with different priorities expecting different things. And then a lot of times they just don't allow you to go in and just do your job. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think one of those, the most important is if you think about distributions, right? There are some family members that are high up in the organization. They make great salaries and distributions are a valuable part of the value that they get from the businesses. But there's other family members that are a little bit lower in the business where distributions will make the difference between whether they can buy that car or not, whether they can put their kid through college or not, whether they can buy that house that they always wanted or not. And so they have a natural conflict between those folks that want to distribute out as much cash to the family as possible versus those that want to keep reinvesting in the business to have it grow. And so that's a tension in any business, but in a family-owned business, it's that much more complicated for the members of the extended family. Absolutely. Absolutely. And listeners, most of you picked up what Jeff was saying there, but as the business has profit, it always has to make a decision. Do I keep that profit in the company and use it to reinvest in the future growth of the company? Or do I send that profit out to the owners so that they can spend and enjoy it or give it away, whatever they may do? And every business has that tension, as Jeff said, but in a family business, you may have one family member saying, we want to reinvest. And you may have another family member who they have to have Friday night activities with who is saying, well, I need that money or I can't pay my kids tuition or I can't buy a car or whatever it may be. And inside of a business that doesn't have family involved, that's the emotions that we're talking about that just really don't normally exist you can kind of say, no, we're going to do what's best for the business and blow everything else off. But when you have family involved, it's a lot harder because they may give you flack about this every single time you're with them from that moment forward if you don't do what they want. So it just magnifies, as Jeff said. So thanks for letting me test my hypothesis. You came out of working with that family company and ultimately I... Loved seeing your drive and your desire, Jeff. At this point, I got to be, I got to experience some of the earliest stages of this where you were dreaming about putting together a fund where you could go do what you do really well in helping buy out a business, coach the new executive team. And so tell me how that led to ultimately ramping up Hanuk Ventures into you know, what you're doing today. And actually, before I go there, what does Hanuk even mean? Where did that come from? Yeah, thanks for asking, Tommy. The Hanuk part of it is 
It's a Hebrew version of Enoch. So it's a reference to one of my best friends. I grew up with him. He was the best man in my wedding, and I was the best man in his wedding. And unfortunately, about eight years ago, he had some back pain and went into the hospital and found out that he had uh, stage four colon cancer and had weeks to live. And so he and I, I was fortunate to have two months with him before he passed away on Christmas Day eight years ago, but maybe nine years ago now. Uh, it's been a long time. I miss him. I miss him a lot. But I got an opportunity to speak at his funeral and share what he had written in the margins of his Bible, which was, Lord, make me a man like Enoch, a man who walks with you. And so the Lord took him earlier than any of us thought he would go. But when I had those two months with him, he encouraged me with Hanuk Ventures that was just starting out. He said, why are you waiting to do this? I had had this mental model in my mind that I was going to learn leadership in the military in my 20s. I was going to learn business in my 30s. And then in my 40s and 50s, I was going to run businesses. And then I was going to coach people that were doing businesses at, you know, 50s, 60s, 70s. I had that kind of mental model. And he challenged me and he said, hey, why are you waiting to run businesses? Who cares if you're in your mid-30s? Just start doing it. And that's what Hanuk Ventures, that's where the genesis of that was. And so I began to do some of that angel investing. I began to start coaching entrepreneurs and do that work. And after seeing the biggest of the big companies and the smallest of the small companies, I ultimately said, enough is enough. I need to go out and do this. So I need to stop being such a coward. I need to build up some investors and go find a business for me to buy and hopefully buy several of these businesses and really become a good steward for these primarily family-owned businesses, oftentimes businesses that have a faith element or, or at least have a legacy of faith in them. I understand what those people are going through and what they're building and what they want their legacy of their company to be. And oftentimes, they don't have a family member or a leader that's ready to kind of take that business to the next step. And so that's when Hanuk Ventures started. And, and Tommy, I don't know if you remember, but that's actually how we met. I went on to Google and said, who are the top business advisors in Fort Wayne, Indiana? And no offense, Tommy, you were number five, but there was the top five and you're number five. And I cold called each and every one of them. And number one called me back and number five called me back. And that was you, Tommy. And we went and had that coffee and I shared my story that I was looking for a business to find and buy. And, you know, I said I wanted something in Fort Wayne, something blue collar, something I get my hands dirty. And the Lord laughed at my plans and said, I'm going to give you a software company in Atlanta, Georgia. But we've ended up staying here in Fort Wayne and we're continuing to look for businesses. And as I've started and shared the story with a bunch of folks, many of my former students, many of folks that I've worked with in the military are now getting out of the Coast Guard and looking for businesses to lead themselves. I've met many, many folks through the years and I've mentored a bunch of folks through the years and many of them are looking to find a business. And so now I've got this double-sided network where I'm trying to find business owners that want to have a great, healthy transition. And I have a great group of young leaders in their late 30s, early 40s that want to buy or own and lead a business and just need a little bit of coaching and support. And that's what I love and I'm passionate about doing. So Hanuk Ventures has started that. We've fortunately bought our great first company down in Atlanta, the software company called Cornerstone Support, which is a wonderful organization that helps businesses get licenses. But now we're also looking at many other organizations and talking about having healthy transitions with those companies as well.
So after you buy a business, Jeff, you're not necessarily looking to install yourself as the leader of that company. You're putting together a vast network of leaders that you know are looking for opportunities where you can put them in to lead the company. And then you're coming in more as a board member or a CEO coach, or how does that part actually work? What is your typical kind of formal role with the company? Yeah, that's a great question. So what I try to do is I try to help formulate the deal so it's fair all on, on both sides of the transaction. And that means that the legacy of the founder, owner, operator is carried forward. The leadership team is carried forward. Uh, the support and what the business is doing, all of that is brought forward into this new generation. And I'm bringing in this new leader. So I will take a large equity position in the company to make sure that there's no question that, that Jeff is going to be involved. I'm bringing that new CEO in and I am their active coach. Jeff, is this a majority stake? So I prefer to have the new CEO that's coming in have the majority stake. And then I have a large minority stake, as do some other investors. So we come in and we support that owner. But but in my model, I believe that that CEO needs to have 51% or more Otherwise, they won't believe it's theirs. They'll think of themselves as an employee as opposed to the owner. And so I don't want that dynamic confusing the issue. I want them to know that they have the majority position and I'm there as coach and supporter and believer in them in taking this organization to the next level. So how are these leaders then? Let's say they've come out of the Coast Guard and they're going to take a 51% ownership stake in this business. How are they coming up with the capital to accomplish that? Yeah, so I work with a great group of investors that are permanent capital investors. So that's they're not leading funds. They're not looking for rip and flips like a typical PE fund where you buy it, you tweak a couple of things, you fire some staff and you sell it a couple of years later. They're permanent equity folks. So they believe in the organization. They believe in the leader that's coming in and they believe in me and the fact that I'm going to be coaching and I have an equity position in that company as well. So I've got a lot of skin in the game to make sure this organization does well. Through that process, I am cultivating and coaching and training and preparing those members to come on as the CEO of that organization. And by the way, I don't want to take too much credit. A lot of these folks have MBAs from top programs. They're excellent leaders who have led very large organizations already. Many of them just are, need to tweak some of their knowledge around marketing and sales and some of those things that are very specific to the private sector and to the lower middle market private sector. So that's where I come alongside them and coach them and help them and, and spend several hours every week with them, working through those different issues that they're, they're dealing with, spending some time with them and, and continuing to build the business. So I still don't understand where they're coming up with the cash to take their 51% ownership stake? Mm -hmm. So it's a combination of the deal that's presented to the owners is a combination of debt, often an SBA loan, where it's only required to have 10% down. And then the investors and I will front most of the capital to get the down payment down. But the debt is held by that CEO owner operator, that new CEO. And so it's a combination of the debt and the equity that's funded by those folks. There's a preferred return for the investors. So they get a return back before that CEO sees any of their money. And then there's a split of the common shares after that. I see. So these aren't $100 million businesses. These are smaller businesses in the price range where you can go get an SBA loan to fund a big chunk of the transaction. 
That's correct. That's correct. That makes total sense. Makes sense now. And I love that model. Wow. Talk about extreme ownership. It's one thing to give the CEO, you know, a 10% or 15% stake in the company. This is a whole different level. You're really helping them arrange the financing. You're coming in with a whole bunch of support from you and an investor base. And so you're really putting a lot of stake in this CEO coming to the table that they're going to be able to do the job well. That's right. And I don't believe any successful, healthy transition that goes from what the legacy company was to what this new company is going to be will work unless the former CEO, the sellers of the business, believe in that new CEO and believe in the teamwork between myself and that CEO and the investors. Because all three of us on the new side of the organization have to be 100% aligned. Because if the investors aren't aligned, then they're going to say, oh, no, we want the money out faster or we're going to, you know, mess with things. We're going to kick people out. Or, you know, if the CEO is is there and saying, oh, I, I'm going to do something crazy with the business or I'm going to do something that's irrational, that's not a fit either. It's got to be somebody that's willing to be a part of the business for the long term, give the proper return and pay the bills back to the investors who get their money out first before that CEO sees any dividends at all or any distributions at all. It goes back to those investors, and then they will have a minority stake along with me in the business as it goes forward. So in my opinion, it's the best way to align everybody's interest to make sure that the legacy of the business is maintained and that everybody gets a good, solid return. 100%. I love hearing that model. And when your investors come in through Hanuk, are they investing in one deal at a time, or are they coming into a blind pool trusting your judgment? Yeah, it's a great question. Every deal is a unique deal unto itself. So I don't ever ask the investors to jump in and throw a bunch of money in. I'm not taking some fee for assets under management. I don't do that. What I do is I find the deal, I find the leader, and I bring them together. And then I present it to this group of investors. And I share with them the story of both the business and this new entrepreneur leader and share with them the opportunity. So they don't have any obligation to invest in any fund that they don't feel is appropriate. And again, they have to believe in the business. They've got to believe in the entrepreneur and they've got to believe in me and my ability to coach and support that entrepreneur to be successful. I think it's a fantastic model. And obviously it's playing out and being successful already, Jeff. You've already done transactions. And let's kind of wrap on that. What are the types of companies that you're looking for to make additional investments in and do these transitions? So the types of companies we're looking for tend to be in the lower middle market, anywhere between one and three million in EBITDA or net profit. They tend to have revenues anywhere from eight to 20 million in revenues. It's a organization that has a good leadership team in place, one that is endurably profitable. So not something that is seeing wild swings up and down. I know COVID has been an interesting time, but it's been an, a great testing time for the, the endurable profitability of a company. And we're generally looking for strong, either recurring or repeat revenue. So as you make any type of transition to a new leader, there is always things that are challenging in that transition. Oftentimes we see competitors taking advantage and coming after the business. We see some of the leadership team members asking the question of, do I wanna be part of this next generation? And so to endure through that, we want a really high quality business. I'm not looking for turnarounds. I'm not looking for businesses where, hey, buy it for a dollar because there's this great opportunity. We want to get a fair price for a quality business 
where the business owner is most interested in the legacy of the business and the people that are in the business and have that be endurable. And the reason why that's so important for me is, and I tell this to every owner and they don't believe it when I say it, but it's the truth, we'll never be able to pay as much as a private equity firm. Because if you're gonna rip and flip this thing and sell it in a year or two or three, you'll always make more money doing it that way than just maintaining the quality of the business and growing in an appropriate way. Looking for opportunistic you know, acquisitions, but most of the growth will come through organic growth. And so when you have that type of mindset and this, we want to buy your business and run it for the next generation, the next 30, 40 years, not the next five. We have a slightly different cost structure with that. And so we need to maintain that and again, offer something where every one of these stakeholders is happy with the process. That's fantastic. Well, Jeff, you've got a great model and we are going to move into my favorite part of the show now. It's the chance where I get to ask two questions. And my first question is the question everybody wants to know. Really, it's just the question I want to know. When we're at the very beginning of this show, I picked up on something you mentioned. You said, you know, I come from a long line of military officers and pastors, and I knew to keep the family legacy going, I had to choose one of those. And I chose the military officer, but then kind of under your breath, you said, but maybe we'll talk more about the other one in a little bit. I want to open that up. I want to know what you were going to say about the other one. Yeah, thanks. What I do more than anything else is ministry in the marketplace. And I believe that my mission field is the businesses and the folks that I coach, the business people that I'm working with each and every day. I am passionate about serving people. I have, as I mentioned, long legacy of folks that went before me and showed me how to serve others in a very selfless way. And my desire for the rest of my career is to serve people in the business area. And so I believe that what I'm doing is kingdom work. And it's strange if you don't understand it, but if you do, it's the most wonderful work you can possibly do. And the wonderful part about it as well is that it gives me the perspective, a much more long-term perspective on how I want to treat the people in these organizations and how I want to serve these organizations. Because if I wanted to flip these things and make a bunch of money, there's different ways that I could structure things and organize things. But I want to have a long-term mindset in all that I do. And I want to increase the scale of these businesses to increase the impact of these businesses, because ultimately that's what I'm all about. And how can I serve and care for and love on the people that are in these organizations, the employees, the leadership teams of these organizations, so that they can continue and pay that forward in serving and loving and caring for their customers and clients, their families, and hopefully someday the businesses that they own and that they can grow. It's a really powerful why, Jeff. Thanks for letting me ask that. Thanks for sharing. And that moves us into my final question, which is really the question that everybody wants to know. And today, I think surely from our listeners, there's either someone out there that owns a business that's looking to figure out that transition, or maybe they know someone that's in that position, or perhaps they or someone they're connected with is one of these great leaders that's looking for their next opportunity. And I know especially leaders that come from a strong military background are just such an easy fit for you to work with and, and train up on the business sides of things. If anybody like that is out there looking to get in touch with you, what is the best way for them to do that? 
The easiest way is hanukventures.com and hanuk is H-A-N-O-K ventures.com. There's just a form on there. You can fill that out. I'll respond within a day or two. I'm always looking for those businesses, investors that are interested in permanent capital situations and for leaders. I, I always really encourage when I meet these young leaders who are excited about leading organizations and I try to find folks that have a similar excitement and drive that I had 10, 15 years ago when I wish someone had given me the opportunity to come in and lead a business myself. Well, that's incredible. And Jeff, you've just been a tremendous guest. We really appreciate it. And listeners, as always, I absolutely appreciate you. This podcast has grown beyond anything I ever dreamed. And we are just so grateful to have you here. We're grateful to see you next week on Beyond the Ordinary. Thanks for listening to this episode of Beyond the Ordinary. This podcast is brought to you by Mammoth and produced by Reverb. If you like this show, consider sharing it with a friend. You can subscribe to future episodes in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information about Mammoth and Beyond the Ordinary, visit us at mammoth.vc.